Welcome to exclusive coverage of the Miami Book Fair International. For more information, log on to MiamiBookFair.com. Well, hello, it's that time of year. That's right, it's the Miami Book Fair where you're going to meet and hear from your favorite authors and learn all about the latest books. It's one of my favorite times of year, and I'm sure if you're a book lover, it's yours too. For the very first time, the Miami Book Fair is going to be hybrid, meaning it's going to be both in person in downtown Miami and online. No matter what, you're going to want to remember the dates, November 14th through 21st, and there's even a street fair, November 19th through 21st, which I have a feeling it's going to have to be in person. And remember, authors are streamed on demand in several languages. And my guest today is one of the key authors for the for the book fair. It's Paula Stone Williams. Paula uh, will be at the fair in person, folks, Saturday, November the 20th at four o'clock. But make sure you check online before going just to make sure that time doesn't change. So check out MiamiBookFairOnline.com. So Paula Stone Williams, you may know Paula. She's an internationally known speaker on issues of gender equality, LGBTQ advocacy, and religious tolerance. She's been featured in a score of media outlets and is a well-known keynote speaker for hundreds of corporations, conferences, and universities around the world. But of course, she joins me today to talk about her memoir, as a woman, what I learned about power, sex, and the patriarchy after I transitioned. It came out this past June, and I'm thrilled to have Paula on today. Paula, welcome. It's so good to be with you. I'm thrilled to have you on. Congratulations on the book. I have to imagine that it has been incredibly well received since coming out this summer. It really has been. I've been very encouraged by it. Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm, I always hear from authors that they get emails and letters of, of fans. And um, I'm just wondering, did you think it would have, is it having the impact that you wanted it to have? Like, what was the goal for the book? You know, I don't think I really had any expectations about it. I've been around long enough to know that sometimes you are the recipient of dumb luck and sometimes you're <laughs> not. And so about a year ago, I was saying to my editor, that I said, I will send all your advance back. I, I This isn't a great book and I don't wanna write a, just an okay book. And she said, oh, you're close. She said, this is why it's been so, I've been so hard on you in the last couple of months, you're getting really close. And so I kind of went back and rewrote from the beginning last fall, about 10 hours a day for about six straight weeks. And finally had a book I felt good about. So I think that's what matters more than anything else. Do you feel good about what you've written? I think I'm a better speaker than a writer, frankly, and I need all the editorial help I can get. And the folks at Simon & Schuster were wonderful, but I am pleased with the finished product. Yeah, well, congratulations. And it has to be hard telling your life story. And my goodness, it's a, a memoir and a granted, life's not over, there's more to come, but still there's a lot packed in there. I have to admit, I don't always get through the books before I interview the people, but in your case, I read it cover to cover. So that's saying something right Thank there, you. I'm gonna tell you. Um, it's, it's divided into three parts. Um, it starts with the courtship of your now ex-wife, Kathy, and it gets into your marriage, the birth and adoption of your children, the start of your career as a second generation pastor, and your knowledge at an early, early age that you were in the wrong body, essentially. Um, 
it's a lot of ground to cover, including your relationship with your mom and dad in West Virginia. Talk a little bit about, you know, again, a lot to cover. You didn't choose to continue um, to live. You lived as a man basically until you were 60. So why talk about why it took that long for you to really embrace what you had known for so many years? You know, I think that's a multifaceted um, question and answer. There were a lot of reasons. I think more than anything else, and I think I'm being fair to myself when I say this, more than anything else, I did not want to do it to Kathy or my children. But I think there was just barely beneath that, just barely secondarily, my life was comfortable. I was a powerful white male. And, you know, you really have to think hard. See, do I really want to give that up? Is this on the other side really going to have been worth it? And I think the whole time we were raising the kids, I love being a father so much that it just was a back burner issue. It was huge in junior high, huge in high school. And then after we married, well, immediately, it, it was a big deal to me because I realized that marriage didn't cure me. But then, you know, pretty quickly, once we had kids, I was very comfortable being Paul. Was it until the kids left home that it began to get worse and worse and worse, which is fairly typical for people with gender dysphoria, that it gets worse with the passing of time. And in my case, I was, in fact, um, let's see, it would have been 2012, so I'd have been uh, 61 when I had this strong sense of call that I needed to transition. And it was the only time in my life I'd ever exper experienced anything I would call a God. I, I mean, a sense of call. I don't know if the call was from God or not. I'm not sure who God is or what God is or if God exists, but I know it was a sense of a call from somebody so deep and so overwhelming that I really had no choice. I knew that if I said no to it, I'd be saying no at my own barrel. Right, right. You, you were really forced, you had no choice, right? And as you yeah. said, you had gotten comfortable. You ended up losing quite a bit by sharing mm -hmm. your truth, right? You lost your original career. And for a while, you lost Jonathan, your son, mm -hmm. as well. Um, and thousands of friends, you said thousands of friends, thousands, <laughs> literally thousands, I knew probably by name and my old denomination, which had 6000 churches, I probably knew five to 10,000 people by name. I was a leader in that denomination. And post-transition, I've had substantive conversations with exactly three of those yeah. people. So yeah, and in my non-evangelical world, I lost exactly none of my friends, yeah. not any. So make of that what you will. Right, yeah. that, that's, that is interesting. Would you have anticipated that? Did you anticipate that being the case? Oh, God, no. I don't think there's any way an entitled white male has any understanding of just how far that sense of privilege extends. And so I thought, well, you know, these people have two options. They either can think to themselves, um, well, we need to understand a little better what it means to be transgender because we certainly know Paul's character and he had marvelous character. Or they could think, oh, wow, we, we were wrong about Paul for all those decades because it's clear he was not a person of character. I was absolutely shocked that the major narrative was the latter of those two. That yes. They decided that I had never been a person of character. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, 
right? It says a lot about them more than it says something about yeah, you, doesn't it? And yet, true. but Kathy stayed at your side. I, I mean, I have to say that um, when I read your memoir, I just, I wanted to know so much about Kathy uh, because she seems like an extraordinary woman. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that was like for her to be married for 41 years to you, right? And then you had this calling to make this transition and she she really did, I mean, I'm sure it was challenging. Can you describe, describe that a little bit for us? You know, it was hard. I did not tell her uh, that I was trans before we married because the last couple of years before we got married, it really was very much in the back burner of my life. And we both grew up in the purity culture of evangelicalism and were convinced that once we had intimacy that we would, in fact, all would be well. And I thought whatever is remaining of my gender dysphoria will be cured. And when it wasn't, I thought, oh my, I need to tell her and did within months. But we were both young, naive and had no idea what it meant. And it really wasn't until we moved here to Colorado in 2006 that I think we began to fully understand what the future might hold. I remember us standing in the house we rented for a year before we built this house and me being at the bottom and Kathy at the stop, top of the staircase. And she said, I did not know we'd moved here to divorce. And I think it's the first time either one of us ever used that term. The most devastating day was when we were with our marriage therapist who was just amazing. And we happened to be his class clients on his last day before he retired. And so we're both therapists. And so I just asked him, Mike was his name. I said, Mike, how many couples are willing to work this hard? And he, he didn't hesitate for a second. He said 1%. And I said, how many couples get this far? And again, he didn't hesitate. He said 1%. And then he said, which is what makes this so tragic because you're a lesbian and she's not. And it was a quiet two hour ride home because yeah. I mean, he, that was the truth. And so, yeah, it's been very, very hard for Kathy. We're so close. We're actually having dinner together this evening, but it's not been easy. No, no, but a, a truly a commitment born out of obviously a lot of love there in the relationship. Um, your children, you know, when I, um, as a mom myself, you know, I, I was reading your memoir through the eyes, my eyes, and I was thinking of your daughters who seemed to, immediately embrace you um, while your son was more troubled by the news. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about their journeys um, over the last several years? You know, I think a lot of that is how we socialize our daughters. We teach our daughters to think about others first, always, to not own up to their own ambition or to their own desires or even to their needs of their own hearts. And I think to a degree, my girls were just concerned about taking care of their dad because that's how they had been raised to look out for Kathy's and my needs before their own. And Jonathan was raised as we raise most sons, which is to be confident and to be sure of yourself. I also think there was more emotionally at stake for Jonathan. We were extremely close. And the truth is we were talking not long ago and I was talking with one of my closest friends and she said, "Is I mean, how, how is it now? And I said, you know, 
um, probably it's still the most painful with Kathy and with Jonathan, because those are two relationships that will not ever be quite the same. With the girls, it was not as difficult. Now they each took their own leave. Jaina took hers um, the year I lived in Denver. So 2016 to 17, I was 10 minutes away from her and did not see her once in that entire year. And then JL, our daughter we adopted from India when she was two months of age, uh, she was much later in taking her leave. And we were joking about it just last week. I said, you know, I mean, seriously, we adopted you, a brown child, into a white family in a white culture in a very white town on Long Island. And then on top of all that, we're clueless about your experience as a person of color. And then I transitioned genders. I mean, you know, you could have gotten a better luck of the draw in terms of an adoptive family. And, you know, she, she laughs about it now, but I mean, that was in fact something she had to deal with. And I think anyone who deals with adoption has to deal with a lot of issues, particularly transracial adoption. It's not a perfect answer to anything. Add to that the complexities of my transition. And it's a wonder she came back at all. But really, I'm close to all three kids now. And it's, um, you know, I think we've hit a new normal. I mean, it's almost 10 years since we told them, but uh, almost nine years almost to the, to the month. But it's we're, we're getting close to a new normal, I think. Yeah, you're in a good you're in a good place. We are. <laughs> yeah. So of course, one of the more fascinating sections of the book. I mean, it's all fascinating, but for me, is this aha that you had after you transitioned about what it was like to live life as a woman. And I mean, of course, I'm reading it, going, well, yeah, yeah, yep, yep, got mm -hmm. that, got that. <laughs> Yes, that all makes sense to me. But to you, it was surprising. Talk about some of the ahas that you've experienced since transitioning to be a woman when you had lived, as you say, in your own words, as this privileged white male for 61 years. Yeah, I don't think I was at all prepared. And I cannot count the number of times I have said to Kathy, oh, I am so, so sorry. I just did not understand. You know, the truth is I still don't have a cisgender female experience and I brought a lot of my privilege with me. I often say I won't live long enough to lose my male entitlement, but that doesn't mean I don't constantly see my power diminishing. And because I travel and speak now in my new life, just as I did in my previous life, the easiest place for me to compare apples to apples is in my travel experience because I'm executive platinum with American before I'm executive platinum with American afterwards. And that has been striking. In my first TED talk, I talk about my very first day flying as Paula. I got on the plane and there was stuff in my seat and I picked it up and put my stuff down. And a guy said rather testily, that's my stuff. I said, okay, but it's in my seat. I'll be happy to pick up your, to hold your stuff for you till you find your seat. He said, lady, that is my seat. And I said, well, actually it's not, it's my seat. It's one deep, but you know, like I said, I'll be happy to hold your stuff till you find your seat. He said, lady, I don't know what I need to tell you. That is my seat. And I said, yeah, it's not, it's my seat. And the guy behind me interrupts me and says, lady, would you take your effing argument elsewhere so I can get in the plane? I was stunned. Oh. I had never been treated like that as a man. 
finally gave the boarding passes to the flight attendant. And she said to the guy, sir, you're in one seat. She's in one D. I sit down in my seat, one D. Of course, you know who's next to me in one F, mister, would you take your effing argument elsewhere? And my friend Karen, who works for American at DIA at the Denver airport, uh, came on the plane to get the paperwork to the captain and she waved goodbye as she left. I got to Charlotte and she called me and she said, Paula, what happened? And I told her and she said, oh yeah, welcome to the world of women. You know, I can tell you exactly what would have happened when I was a guy, if that had taken place. I would have said, excuse me, I believe that's my seat. And immediately the guy would have looked at his boarding pass and said, oh, I'm sorry, I can tell you that with certainty because it happened scores of times over the decades. Yes. And yet now all the time, I was flying from LAX to Honolulu because somebody has to. <laughs> and I, I was in first class with the free upgrade. It was an extremely bumpy flight. And the woman next to me was rather frightened. And she said, I've never been in a flight this bumpy. And I said, I know we're in a first generation Airbus 321. And he really has to burn off a lot of fuel before he can get up above the weather and doesn't really have the range to go around the weather. She looked at me like I had three heads. Then a male, a male flight attendant comes by and she says, why is it so bumpy? And he said, oh, we can't fly up above the weather yet. We have to lay, wait a while. And she said, oh, thank you very much. I thought, no, wait, right. I just told you why. <laughs> yes, You can't exactly. fly above the weather yet. But no, <laughs> I mean, it is all the time. Right, right. And not only did he just give her a very, he gave her a very vague answer, which she accepted, mm -hmm. whereas right. you gave her a much more detailed answer, right? It, yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, welcome to our world, Paula. Um, oh my, it just never <laughs> stops. And it is so aggravating. I always say to guys, if there's one thing you could do that would make a huge difference, assume that a woman knows what she's talking about and treat her accordingly. Yes. Just that one thing yes. would make yes. a huge difference. Yes. Talk to me about how other women relate to you. Uh, because, you know, I think we as women, uh, many of us support each other, right? And then there's other women that uh, we're competitive, right? They, they see us as competition. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic? Yeah, I was not prepared for relationships between women. There is a complexity there that I don't believe I will ever understand. I mean, honestly, I know I come from the borderlands between genders. I live in a liminal space between male and female. I don't have a cisgender female experience. I was not raised as a woman, but it is to me astonishing and disappointing. I say that in a, in a lot of my corporate speaking. It's disappointing to me that women do not, on the whole, empower one another. My experience is that they treat one another as competition. And I was talking with KK Otteson at the Washington Post about this when she interviewed me for an article there. And she said, oh, that's not been my experience. My experience is that women very much um, support one another. And so we, we, she continued the interview the next day. And as we were talking, she said, oh, by the way, I was talking to Madeleine Albright last night as one does. And she said, I had mentioned to her what you had said. And she said, oh, don't you remember me saying there's a special place in hell reserved for women who don't empower one another? You know, I, I have been so disappointed in that, but I think I understand it. 
you know, 5.8% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women, 6.6% of Silicon Valley CEOs are women, 47% of first year law associates are women, but only 15% make partner. You know, it, it's, I mean, it's tough for a woman. And so understandably they see each other as competition, but it's also been very clear to me that until, until women start empowering one another and not seeing each other as competition, we're not ever gonna get anywhere near gender equity. Right. There's a story in the book about your friend, Jessica, um, a dear friend who, with whom you co-founded a church. And um, I mean, she knew you as Paul, right? And then mm -hmm. also as Paula. And that Jessica ended up not becoming staying a friend. Do you feel like that experience with Jessica is emulative of some of the experiences that you've had with other women? Or was that just a, a confounding situation? I thought it was only a confounding situation. But the more I hear from other women, and the more I live as a woman, the more I see it's not uncommon. And it has caused me to be cautious entering deeply into friendships because um, male friendships are pretty simple. They may not be incredibly deep, but they are very simple. And men tend to be very loyal to one another. And with women, there are lots and lots of words and I'm a person, always have been, of lots and lots of words. And you can tell me anything and I will take it in. I will sleep on it. I will allow it to get below my ego level to my soul level. And I will accept the truth of it. But we need to be able to talk through it. And I find that that's not always been possible with women. Yeah. So talk a little bit about your life now. You, you, your TED Talks are huge, more than 6 million views. Um, as you mentioned, um, you do a lot of keynote speaking and you have a new spiritual home, it sounds like as well. Well, actually, I am still at that church. Uh, the way things worked out, I was uh, brought back as one of the founding pastors after the other two co-pastors had left and have three other co-pastors, we're all part-time. Two are women, and I'm very close to both of them. And yes, it's complicated, <laughs> um, but I love um, being a part of a church. It's a very liberal church. I, I believe that religion is actually good, which a lot of people are surprised that I would say that given the way evangelicalism treated me. But I think the church is one of the few institutions on earth whose sole existence is to teach us how to be human together and to figure out the meaning of life together. So of course it's messy if that's what we're doing together. And for me, my church is very grounding. I mean, I speak all over the world. I, I do lots of media interviews. I've done three TED Talks. I, you know, it's, that's all marvelous, but to be able to stand up in front of a group of people at Left Hand Church every Sunday and talk about our life together, that to me is what grounds me. Yeah. So what's next for you? What's what's on the horizon now that you've got the memoir out? Uh, is there another book in you somewhere or what what's next? Yeah, I think for me, the next book would be um, in why I believe religion is a good thing. 
I used to teach a doctoral course, Current Trends in American Religion. And oh, believe me, I know the problems with American religion. I know the problems with the fundamentalist expression of all three desert religions. They're all in their fundamentalist expressions remain religions of scarcity. But I also believe that there's a very positive role for religion in society. And so I think that could be the next book. The very next thing in the horizon is I just finished a meeting on Friday with a production company in Hollywood and we're working on a three season, 10 shows per season, 30 show um, uh, story, television series about my life. So oh, wow. it's uh, we're looking like it's gonna be from the inside out. So it'll be uh, from my perspective and talking about multiple actors playing me, about a trans man possibly playing me as Paul and, and a young boy playing Paul, a young girl playing Paula, which kind of brings me to tears, the idea that that would be on screen the way I saw myself <laughs> as a child. And yeah, so we're just starting to work on that. So it's pretty exciting. That's no, that's more than exciting. That's very, very yeah. thrilling. Congratulations. Yeah. That's Thank wonderful. You. Well, and best of luck at the Miami Book Fair. I know you, you will be incredibly warmly received. And um, I just want to remind everyone that they can meet you Saturday. November 20th at four o'clock Eastern right there in Miami. And until then, Paula, best of luck with everything that you've got going on. It's marvelous being with you, Maria. Thank yeah. you so much. Take care. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.